You may think that's an interesting passage to choose for Father's Day. And truth is, I really didn't think a whole lot about what was happening today when I was going through and planning the series, but Jeff was not exactly the model father by any stretch of the imagination. But I want to look at the story in more than just that, what this story of Jephthah might teach us. I think it's more than just a Father's Day message about what it looks like to be a good or what it looks like to be a bad father. Because part of reading our Bible is recognizing we have to read it in context. We have to read on what's going on. Sometimes we treat our Bibles like Aesop's fables. We have a number of collections of Aesop's fables in our house. You can flip through them and you can read about the lion and the mouse or the tortoise and the hare or the fox and the scorpion, all these different stories. And it doesn't matter what story comes before or what story comes after. In fact, you could just tear a page right out and you can read the story and at the end, oftentimes there's a little message, a little moral to the story. Sometimes we treat our Bibles like that. We come to a story like Jephthah and we just want to rip out a page or two and, and read about Jephthah and say, oh, here's the moral of the story. But that's not what our Bible is. That's not how our Bible's designed to function. That's not what God gave us. God gave us a story, a story that leads up to Jesus. In fact, Jesus, after his resurrection, he's walking with some disciples down a road and he's talking to them and he says, don't you understand that all the scriptures pointed to me? There's other places in the New Testament that reflect that same thing. That when we read our Bibles, all of the Bible is pointing and culminating in the story. It's this story that's reaching and following different paths and taking different turns. stuff. But it all leads to Jesus. And to his death and his resurrection and his reigning over a new creation. And so when we read the story of Jephthah, we have to figure out how it fits in that. So as we get ready to read this story, we have to step back and think about the larger context. The larger context of the Bible, a Bible in which God creates a world, a good world in which he puts people to reign as his servant kings, as priests, to represent himself to the world about how people chose their own path. And they took off in this descendants in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the very opening stories of the Bible are this spiral down into sin where it just gets worse and worse, where brother kills brother, and then the whole world is filled with violence, and there's a flood, and then people going after their own things, denying who God wants them to be and what God wants them to do. And you're left after those first 11 chapters, those first 11 pages of the Bible, wondering, what's God going to do? He already flooded the earth once. He, re he hit the control-alt-delete. He reset the earth once. And it's back to bad in no time at all. And so in just starting in Genesis chapter 12, we start to read this story of how God plans to renew the creation. And he plans to renew it through a people and through a particular family. And so he chooses a man named Abraham. And he comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. And we read about these blessings and how they counter the curses of Genesis 3. And he gives promises to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you a child. And then I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to give you a land to settle in. And the rest of the opening books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are the story of this family and all the obstacles along the way. Because when God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abraham's pretty old. Dave was talking about old. and being Abraham was in his 90s. And God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, don't have any children at this point. 
in order to become a great family and a great nation, there's at least one requirement, children. And he's got none. And so there's an obstacle along the way, but we see God's faithfulness overcome that obstacle. And we see Abraham and his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob and and their scheming and their lying and their tricks and everything. And all along the way, God maintains his faithfulness. And he begins to build them into a great nation. And then they end up in slavery in Egypt. And while they're in slavery in Egypt, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, threatens to kill them all. That's a threat to the promise. And God rescues them and brings them out of Egypt. And so now we have this great nation, this throng of people traveling through the desert. So Abraham has had a son. He's become a great nation, but they're still lacking something, a land to live in. And the land is about a place where God's people can settle and where they can become a shining light to the world around them. And so the book of Joshua picks that story up and they come into this land that God has promised and they settle in a land and it divided all up. And so, and so we finish the book of Joshua and we feel like, ah, oh, it's about to happen. God's people have become a great nation. They've got a land to live in. They're going to show the whole world how good and great God is through their holy living that they've learned about, through the way they treat one another, the way they treat their neighbors, the way they treat the foreigner and the widows and the orphans. And we start the book of Judges, comes after the book of Joshua, and it doesn't take long before the story feels like it's going out of control again. And the book of Judges is this series of cycles. I remember I went to a workshop many years ago and the idea was to kind of memorize the storyline of the Bible. And they use these little picture cards and stuff. And the one of the picture cards they used for the book of Judges was a guy with a, a long robe and a big beard riding on a Harley Davidson. And the idea was you associated Judges with cycles. Because the book of Judges is a series of cycles where God's people are there and they start chasing foreign gods. They start worshiping idols. They start mistreating the poor and the widows. They start doing all the things that God has told them not to do. And as a consequence, God punishes them. And usually he punishes them by letting a foreign country come in and attack them. The Philistines, the Ammonites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, all these little ones that end in the ite, the termites. No, the termites, I want them. But there's, there's all these different ones that come in and they tell And so they're there. So they fall into sin. God sends punishment on them. Next phase in the cycle, they say, help. God, rescue us. And so God rescues them. He sends what's called a judge. And we think of a judge exactly like that. A person wearing a robe, sitting up on a bench with a gavel. But the judges were leaders. They were sent by God to lead the people, to bring deliverance, to rescue them. And so there's these whole series of these judges that come along and rescue the people and bring them out. And that's where Jephthah, so we've seen already we're in chapter, we're going to pick up actually in chapter 10. So we had nine other chapters of these different judges coming along, like Barak and Deborah. And they come in and the people have rescued and the cycle continues. So if we were to go back a little before the passage we read today, Chapter 10, verse 6 of the book of Judges. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So where are we? We're at the start of the cycle again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the God of Aram, the God of Sidon, the God of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. So they weren't just sinning small. They were sinning. I mean, they, like, if we're going to serve other gods, let's just serve them all. 
sin big or go home, right? So they're there and they say, and it says, and because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served them, he became angry with them and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and Ammonites. So sin, God sends punishment, right? And so then we read down through the story, verse 10, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We're down at the bottom of the cycle, right? Help. And the people at this time even say, God, we're sorry. We, we, we know we shouldn't be doing this. I know we've been doing it for hundreds of years. I know we keep turning away from you, but God, we're, we're really sorry this time. But as we read it, God's like, no, I'm not buying it this time. You know, I, I don't think you're really honest in your confession. And maybe you've had that sometime where somebody does something to you, or maybe your children have done something wrong. And like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And really what they're looking for is you to move on, right? They just want it to be over with. We don't want to deal with it. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They're not really saying, I'm sorry, I did it. It's more often, I'm sorry, I got caught. Or I'm sorry, I'm getting punished. And so it seems like God picks that up. And then we're introduced. So that's kind of the setup of the story. So we're down at the bottom of the cycle where we're expecting a deliverer. But then we're introduced to Jephthah. Jephthah the Gileadite, who was a mighty warrior. But we read at the start of chapter 11 that Jephthah was also, it said, his father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. And so Gilead, Jephthah was kind of looked down on by everybody. And he gets kind of kicked out of town. He's like, oh, we don't want you, you know. Your mother was not the paragon of virtue and we're not so sure about you. So Jephthah kind of goes out. And Jephthah starts to rally around some other ruffians around him. Where it says, in my translation, it says, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him. I like that, scoundrels. Some scoundrels gathered around him. So Jephthah's out there and he's got this gang of scoundrels around him. And then the people come to Jephthah because the Ammonites are still attacking them. And they haven't been rescued yet. And they come to Jephthah and say, hey, Jephthah, could you lead us? And now see, the story has been reversed because usually what happens is God appoints a deliverer. God appoints a leader for deliverance. And here Jephthah says, sure, I'll lead you. I'll help you get the Ammonites out of here. But you got to do something for me. Put me in charge. And so the story gets a little bit reversed. And we start to say, wait a minute. In all the other stories, God appointed a leader and that brought deliverance. And now we have Jephthah kind of scheming and saying, I'll bring you some deliverance if you make me the leader. And so it's the beginning of this reversal in what's going on here. And then he has this whole discussion with the Ammonites and that's kind of long and we're not going to get into that a whole lot. The rest of chapter 11 is him talking to the Ammonites and trying to make a deal with them and telling them why they should leave the land and stuff. And so we're going to pick up the story at verse 20, 28. And it says, The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message, message Jephthah sent him. So Jephthah's tried some diplomacy. He's tried to give him a history lesson, tried to say what's going on, and king of Ammon isn't having it. And so now we enter into this story that frankly is a hard story. And we want to acknowledge that. We're in this series on weird passages of the Bible, our weird Bible, our strange Bible. But it's also strange because sometimes we, we, it's just hard. 
We're like, what, what do I do? What's going on here? And so the story begins like the other stories of the judges. It says, then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. And there's this picture of the spirit of the Lord coming on Jephthah. And we recognize that the spirit, when we see those words, the spirit or the spirit is anointing or the spirit is poured out, that God is appointing someone for a particular task. Doesn't always mean the person's a good person. There were times when Cyrus was appointed and other people that have been appointed that weren't good people. But Jephthah is given a role and he's given the power to do that. The story's all before this. Every time we read that phrase, and the spirit of the Lord was on, or the spirit was poured out on, immediately after that, we see that person, that deliverer, come and kick out the enemy. But the story reads a little different here, and that's why we pay attention. We, wait, we say, wait a minute, because again, that's why we can't just rip this out of the pages of the Bible and read it, because we don't notice those little things that go on. And one of the little things that go on is we stop and we say, wait a minute, that's not how the story goes. And you're familiar with this if you watch procedural crime dramas or if you watch comedies or if you watch a lot of movies. They follow a pattern, don't they? There's going to be a murder introduced. There's going to be a series of suspects. And then there's going to be, oh, there's the, the one that we think it is, but it's not really that one. And you kind of know the pattern of the story goes. And when you watch a movie or a TV show and the pattern's different, what happens? You say, wait a minute. That's not how these stories work. And this is what happens in the book of Judges. That something different happens here. Instead of this immediate conquering, we hear Jephthah make a vow. And we wonder, well, what's he making this vow? He says, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, whoever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So God's spirit has just fallen on him, and whether he doesn't know it or not, he now says to God, he goes, well, God, I'm not sure you're really going to do it. I'm not sure this is enough, so I'm going to make this vow. I'm going to do this little transaction. It's almost like I put my quarter or my dollar bill now in the vending machine, and I get something out. And so Jephthah says, here's my vow. Now you give me the Ammonites. And first of all, we recognize the vow is... Kind of a crazy vow. Okay. I read this and I think, okay, what did he think was going to happen? If you give the Ammonites in my hand, whatever comes out of the door of my house, did he expect a goat to come running, rushing out the front door to greet him? Was the cow going to come meandering out the front door and say, welcome home, Jephthah, and he was going to sacrifice? Who's inside the house? People. And later on in the story, we read he only has one daughter. So there's his daughter, maybe his wife. He knows it's going to be a person coming out. And so now he's making this vow that says he's going to sacrifice them as a burnt offering. Now you don't need to have read the first five books of the Bible to know sacrificing people as burnt offerings is not a good thing. But God makes it very clear. In fact, that's one of the sins of the people around them. That we've just heard that the Israelites were following after these other gods, after the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Moab and stuff. One of the practices that many of those other religions had was to sacrifice children, to sacrifice people to, to their gods. And so Jephthah makes this vow and we're thinking, oh, this just isn't going to end well. 
I mean, you've probably had those stories. You've seen those things happening. The person climbing up the ladder and they're reaching out over this way and they're leaning like this. And you're watching and you're saying, this isn't going to end well. And that's what it's like with Jephthah. You hear him like, hey, whatever comes out my door, I don't know what it could be. I'm going to sacrifice that as a burnt offering. Well, so then interruption to the story Jephthah went over to the fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands, which is that little part we expected to follow right after the Spirit of the Lord coming on him. But we get this little vow thing and then because we're kind of left hanging saying, okay, what's going to happen now? Because he's conquered the Ammonites. So when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, I like the way the narrator says it, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sounds of timbrels. She was an only child. So just to emphasize how sad and horrible this story is, she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter. And then notice what he says. You have brought me down. Wait a minute. Whose fault is this anyhow? This is what happened when people came back from war. This was the expected thing. When fathers, when uncles, when soldiers return from war to the house, usually the women in the house, the servants, the, the wives, the daughters would come out with timbrels and cymbals and say, welcome home. We know that. We see it here in our own country, right? When, when the soldiers come back home, you have all the videos of people with the surprise greetings at the airport or the, the banners in front of their house, the parades after the big wars. This is exactly what expected to happen. So the daughter does exactly what she is expected to do, exactly what Jephthah would have thought happened any other day. She comes out of the house, and because he's made this vow earlier, she's like, oh, what are you doing, daughter? It's your fault now. You have brought me down, and I'm devastated. I'm hurt because of you. He's hurt. She's the one going to be sacrificed. And then we get this part where I'm not entirely always sure what to do. Is My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. So she turns and she says, it's okay. But I want us to think about this story now. So goes on and she says, do to me as you've promised. But she wants to go off and spend some time with her friends before she gets married and to mourn. And then it comes back. And the narrator simply says, after two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. Now, one of the interesting things that Bible stories often do is stories, these stories are written in, we often wish we were given more details. We often wish we could get that little explanatory comma. And that's that thing, that sentence where something goes and then you get the little comment says, oh, this is what I mean by that. Or this is what's going on. And sometimes we wish we had that in this story. So, so what exactly? Because it's like, he did to her as he had vowed. And what happened? So, and so... There are some scholars, there are some commentators, both Jewish and Christian readers, who read this story and suggest that Jephthah's daughter wasn't offered as a burnt offering, but instead was dedicated to the Lord. And there are things in the grammar that allow that as a possibility. In that phrase that happened earlier where it says, when I return in triumph from the Lord's, um, whatever comes out of the door will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. The conjunction there, remember the conjunction, things that grant to the word and, the Hebrew word, the vav there, can sometimes be translated as or. And so it could be, 
will be offered to the Lord or sacrificed as a burnt offering. And so some people read it and suggest, well, Jephthah was saying, if it's a personnel dedicated to the Lord, if it's an animal, we're going to sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Same people also read the story and say, why make the big deal about her being a virgin? I mean, why make the big deal about, oh, she went away for two months and then he did to her as he vowed and she was a virgin. It's like, well, it doesn't matter. She's dead anyhow. And so some people say, well, but they're emphasizing the pathos, the sadness of the story because she is a virgin and she'll never marry. And, and Jeff is dedicated. I think that's a possible way to read it, but I think it's the less likely way to read it. Um, like I said, I don't, you know, if that you want to read it that way, I think that's fine. And then there are these stories, again, there are these stories where it's not always clear. It's one way to read the story. But I think we're meant to read the story exactly how we initially take it. That he offered her as a sacrifice. One, my previous argument, where we say like, oh, if they come out of the house, you know, offer to the Lord, or I'll sacrifice it as a burnt offering, suggesting Jephthah was saying, well, if it's a person to this, if it's an animal that, what else is going to come out of the door? I mean, I go back to that argument. What else was going to come out the door of the house? The other is, it's in the story of the book of Judges and this spiral downward where it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And sometimes I think we do this with Jephthah because we want to try and rescue him from the story. We say, ah, oh, nobody can be really that bad. And that's exactly the point of the story. He is really, really bad. In fact, if we were to keep reading after this, he goes to some of his fellow Israelites and he complains that they didn't come help him in the battle. And then he kills 42,000 of them for not helping out in the battle. In fact, he goes to war faster with his own brothers, his own Israelites, than he does with the Ammonites. Remember the Ammonites? He has this whole long chapter where he sends them this big long letter and explains history and says, well, maybe you should just give us the land and leave and part away. He comes to his own tribes, his own people and says, I'm going to kill you. And he does exactly that. So I don't think we're meant to read Jephthah as like, hey, he was really kind of a nice guy, just made a few bad mistakes. And we pay attention, we see things in the story. I already pointed out the fact that when the daughter comes out, he doesn't say, oh, foolish me, I made a bad choice. He says, daughter, you screwed it up. Why did you come out of the house? Why didn't you send the goat out first? And you notice he doesn't actually mourn. It says he rips his clothes, but he doesn't do the other things that are normally gone with mourning. He doesn't put on any ashes. Not only that, his daughter gives him a chance to change his mind. She says, let me go away for two months. He has two months to think about this. He has two months to say, well, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. And you say, well, but he made a promise. He made a really bad promise. And sacrificing a child, when God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, I think God would have been perfectly okay to, if Jeff had said, hey, God, that was a bad vow. That was a bad promise, and I'm not going to keep it. And God would have said, yep, you're right. Bad choice. I mean, it would be like if I went and I said, well, you know, the first person that comes out of the, the building there, I'm going to rob them. <laughs> I promise. And then I started thinking about it and said, oh, wait a minute. That probably wasn't a good promise to make. And then I go back. How many of would you say, oh, Carl, I can't believe you broke your promise. You were supposed to rob that person. Why didn't you rob them? 
That's exactly what happened to Jephthah. His daughter says, I'm going to take two months. I'm going to go be with my friends. I'm going to mourn. I'm going to weep. And Jephthah's like, daughter, you ruined me. It's all your fault. And then he continues on. He's got two whole months to think about it. Two months to talk to the priest. Two months to pray about it. Two months to spend time with God. And he comes back. She comes back and he still does the same thing. And one of the other reasons we know Jephthah is not a good person is at the end of the story, uh, verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 7, Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. Up to this point, again, if you've been reading the book of Judges, after each of the judges comes, there's a line that says something like, and there was peace in the land, or the land had rest for a certain number of years. In other words, something good came out of it. That never happens here. And so we're left with Jephthah was a lousy judge. He didn't do what he said. So what do we do with this story? We say, okay, Carl, you made your point. Jephthah was a bum. He was worse than a bum. He was a horrible man. But what do we do with this story? And so I want to take a couple lessons from it and see how it fits in this picture of decline of these people. One is, as we see Jephthah sacrifice like the foreigners, it leads to acting like foreigners. When you start to worship like the other people, when you start to offer human sacrifices, it leads to acting like that, like how he kills his brothers, his fellow Israelites. So it makes us think about when we begin to worship the wrong things, when we begin to worship in the wrong way, it has consequences. If we think of God as a slot machine, if we think of God as vindictive, if, if we don't understand God as loving, if we don't understand God as holy, if we understand, think of God as, well, God will, God will be okay with this. If we think we can manipulate God, if we worship the wrong God in the wrong way, it will have consequences. So that's part of the story. Second thing is, if we again read this whole story of the book of Judges, one of the things that's highlighted along the way is the way that women are treated. Part of the decline of Israel all along the way, early on in the story, there's a woman named Deborah who's a judge. She is leading Israel. She is helping the armies conquer. We say, oh, this is great. Look at how women are being treated in society. By the time we come to chapter 12, Jephthah's sacrificing his daughter. You read a few more chapters, it gets even worse. And so there's this decline in Israel of the way that women are treated. And the writer of the Bible, and God wants us to see this parallel, that part of a decline in society, part of the way we reflect the society, is how women are treated in that society. How are women being treated? How are they being exploited and victimized? Here we have a father willing to sacrifice his daughter. And so I think it's something for us to think about in a society where one out of four women will experience sexual abuse of some kind. One out of four. And unfortunately, over the last couple of years, it seems like my news feeds, on, as I'm reading on the internet or as I'm reading newspapers or listening to things, are filled with story after story after story of abuse of women. And oftentimes, in the very place where they should be safe, inside the church. We read about Bill Hybels, the leader of Willow Creek Church in, in Barrington, Illinois. 
this huge church, a person I looked up to for a long time. And hear this long story of, of his advances, the way he manipulated women, the way he harassed women. And then to make it worse, the way that the leaders of the church pushed back on the people, the way they looked at the women who came forward and said, uh, told about the things he had done, and they said, no, they're lying, they're lying, and tried to crush them down, accuse them of doing things. It said, oh, it was their fault. They must have done something wrong. Always protecting the man. It happened in a church um, in a, a different denomination where this man had been a youth pastor and he essentially, he was about 21, 22, and there was a 17-year-old girl in his youth group and he essentially raped her. And then he goes on and he, the, the deacons of the church kind of protect him and they shame this girl and say, well, you know, she must have led him on somehow. He moves on and he becomes the pastor of this large church down in Tennessee, church of nearly 2,000 people and he stands up in front of the congregation one Sunday and he talks about, he says, oh, I'm really sorry. I had this, um, you know, there was a time when I had a, a sexual encounter with a young woman. He didn't have a sexual encounter with a young woman. He raped her. And at the end, he says, oh, but my wife has forgiven me and, and everything's okay. And, and the congregation stands up and gives him a rousing round of applause. Southern Baptist Convention, largest Protestant denomination in the United States, just had their annual convention. Now, we're not Southern Baptists, but they represent 15 plus million American Christians. One of the major discussion points at that was this issue because they learned that over the last years, hundreds of pastors had abused women in their churches and often had been protected. They had deacons and elders who would come up and, again, accuse the woman, would accuse them of lying, would simply move the pastors on without doing things. And they finally reached the point where they made a resolution and they kind of said, yeah, you know, if somebody, if a pastor abused someone. And one of the serious fights was, well, should a pastor keep being a pastor if they sexually abuse a woman? And this was a major debate at this conference. That should not have been a debate. That should not have been open to debate. So I read the book of Judges and the way we see this downward spiral and the way women are treated. And it makes sense. You think, oh, that was a couple thousand years ago. That is what's happening today. And so we have to look at the way we treat women and the way women are abused and exploited in so many different ways. Often within the church. And then... It's blamed on the women, just like it happened in the story of Jephthah. Remember what happened? She comes out and Jephthah says, oh, daughter, what, what did you do? And so the woman is raped, abused, exploited. And we say, well, why were you wearing that dress? Maybe you shouldn't have done that. No, no, no. And so we need to pay attention to what's going on. That this evil that God condemned back in the book of Judges is the same evil we need to condemn today. And we need to be willing to take a stand and say those things. And we can't be concerned. Sometimes people are like, oh, but it will damage the witness of the church if we say something. The, damage, the church's witness has already been damaged when that abuse has occurred. We will, not damage, we will damage the church if we don't do something about it. If we hold the person accountable and say, this will not happen. Not on my watch. That is the witness the church should be. And so when we read in the book of Judges about the exploitation and the violence against women, it's a reminder that this was something that God looked on and was evil in the eyes of the Lord back in the days of the judges. And it's evil in the eyes of the Lord today. And we need to be willing to take a stand. Second point I want to make 
is this strange thing that happens because if you take Judges, we're in Judges chapter 11. If you roll forward a whole bunch of places in your Bible and we come to Hebrews chapter 11, and Hebrews is his story about Jesus as the high priest, there's something really strange that happens. Because we're reading in Hebrews 11 and it's talking about people living by faith. And then it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Wait a minute. So the writer of Hebrews is talking along and he's talking about people of faith and all of a sudden we're reading about Jephthah? We say, well, wait a minute. The guy who manipulated his way into power, the guy who made a rash vow, the guy who sacrificed his daughter, the, way, the guy that killed a bunch of other Israelites... Why are we talking about his faith right now? A couple things that happen. One is, we have to read Judges, first of all, on its own. We, then we read Judges through the book of Hebrews, but we recognize they're serving two different purposes. They're writing for two different reasons. The writer of Judges is writing to tell us how bad things were. The writer of Hebrews is talking about what faith looks like because he also talked about Gideon and David they weren't exactly paragons of virtue either. If you know the story of Gideon, he was like, oh God, I don't know if you're going to do that. Can you prove it to me? Okay, uh, can you prove it again, God? David, who, surprise, surprise, raped and abused a woman named Bathsheba. So what do we do with this? So because the writer of Hebrews isn't talking about this, the writer of Hebrews is talking about faith. And being a person of faith doesn't equate with being perfect. Because you have to read on and says, chapter 12, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The writer of Hebrews doesn't say, let's keep our eyes on these people. He says they're a part of it, but the key is our eyes are fixed on Jesus. We're clinging to someone greater, the great high priest. And it's also a reminder that our faith in Jesus doesn't always make us perfect. But Jesus also forgives us. And so I think that's part of the reminder that God can use people who do bad things, but it doesn't make what they've done good. And it doesn't even mean that God wanted them to do the bad things. But here are these people, but in the end, what the writer of Hebrews is doing, just as the writer of Judges is saying, it's not about these people. Ultimately, where our eyes need to be fixed is on Jesus. He's the one who perfects our faith. We can look to human examples, but at the end of the day, we have one perfect example to look to. One perfect example to look to of our faith, and that's Jesus. And so we're invited to do that. So we can look at the story of Jephthah and we can see the decline and the immorality and the horror, the evil that is done in God's eyes. But then we're asked to turn from that and not look to Jephthah and say, well, I, to turn from Jephthah and look to Jesus. And to put our trust and faith in him, knowing of his goodness and his grace. So may we turn our eyes onto Jesus this day. May we look to him who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And may we cling and follow to him today and every day. Amen.